right, well, good morning, Brookside. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful weekend. If you're, uh, if you're a guest, um, as Emma just said, we're so thankful you're here. If you're this, maybe this is your very first Sunday, and uh, we just want to say we're so welcome um, to, or we, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We hope you feel right at home. Yeah, that 10-minute party thing Emma mentioned, that, that's been awesome. We just started that this summer. That's happening next Sunday. So if you're new or newer, we'd love to meet you next week and have you meet some of the staff and tell you a little more about the church. Uh, my name is Brad Zillick. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's fun to be up here this morning. And again, as Emma just said in the video, we're in part three of a four-part series in Psalms this summer. Just we're calling it Summer at Brookside. And so uh, it was awesome to hear from Blaze Smith last week. I was gone, but I listened online. And uh, I love Blaze. I'm excited for what he's going to do in our high school ministry. And so if you were here, it was just a joy for me to listen to him. Um, and then next week, we're going to have a guest speaker here named Paul Sabino wrap up this series. Paul's a longtime friend of Brookside's, uh, a guy I really look up to as a mentor. So he was a leader in the Salt Company, which is a huge college ministry coming out of Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa. And that's where Jeff Dart really came to know Christ. He was involved in Salt Company. He was a student at Iowa State. But Pastor Jeff, uh, Paul to, to Jeff was really a friend and a mentor. Paul's spoken at some of uh, these men's retreats we had years ago. And every time I listen to Paul, I'm, I'm challenged. He has sort of the seriousness about the Word of God that is uh, just, just great. And so you don't want to miss that next week. Uh, well, this morning we come to Psalm 121. And so I'm going to read uh, that psalm this morning, just eight verses, and then we'll dive into the teaching. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up. If you have the A Bible app or the Bible app, open up your phone, turn to Psalm 121. I'd love for you to track along. And so I'm going to read this. I'm reading from the New International Version. Or it's right here on the screen, too. It says this, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Let me pray real quick and we'll dive in. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches and instructs us. God, how it guides our life. It tells us about who you are, God, and what you want for us. God, your love for us, the great message of the gospel. And so, God, this morning, would you speak to us wherever we're at, God? And we come from a, a million different areas dealing with a million different issues. God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? God, wake us up. Allow us to, to be attentive and alert. But God, uh, speak to our hearts. God, speak to our minds. Would you challenge us, God, in ways that we need to be challenged and remind us of your great love for us? So, Lord, would you speak? God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 121 is really a comforting psalm, but as with anything, it's the most comforting when you're facing some sort of severe trial, right? That's when you need comfort the most. So, I was talking this week with some of the staff about this psalm. And uh, Cheryl Lynn was telling me that a close, close friend of hers is currently facing terminal cancer, right? It doesn't get more severe than that, does it? Terminal cancer. We, we never want to hear that diagnosis. And what was interesting was Cheryl Lynn said this exact psalm was something that she was coming back to continually 
And specifically, verses 3 and 4 were just verses that she was sort of memorizing and chewing on, and just that God watches over her, that every morning she didn't know, I may wake, wake up in heaven, I may still be on earth, but she, she just found so much comfort. When you're facing some unimaginable trial, a psalm like this can prove wonderfully comforting. The great Rocky Balboa once said, the world isn't always sunshine and ra- rainbows. It'll beat you down if you let it. And nothing hits harder than life. Isn't that true? I don't know what Rocky movie that's from, but I think he even says the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. As we come here today, as you come here today, I don't know what you're going through. But I do know that for many of you, what you're going through is much, much harder than you'd like it to be. And so in these moments of pain or hardship or just chronic frustration, where do we look? Who do we turn to? Where's God in all of this stuff? And so Psalm 121 says that God is our help. On the journey through life, the Lord God will give you help no matter what you're going through. And so this morning, I want to take a look at this psalm. I want to show you three things in the text. First of all, what you need. Secondly, what God gives. And then how do you know? How do you know that you'll get it? What's our need? What does God give? And then how do you know that you'll get it? All right, so first, what's our need? Well, the answer is very clearly stated in verses 1 and 2. And I just said it, right? We need help. The assumption of this psalm and really of the whole Bible is that we are not self-sufficient. We require at all junctures in our life assistance and help that is both bigger and beyond our strengths and abilities, right? Now, to understand that from this psalm, we need to take a step back and take a look at its context a little bit. Look at the little phrase underneath just the title, Psalm 121 there. It says, a song of a sense. And that title is given by the editors of the book to tell us that this was one of the psalms that was used by the people of Israel whenever they were journeying to Jerusalem for one of their annual festivals. To Jerusalem as a city is situated in this mountaintop area. And so no, no matter what direction you're coming from, in order to get to Jerusalem, you have to ascend. You have to go up. And so this and other psalms were grouped together and called the Psalms of Ascent. So starting at Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, those are 15 Psalms of Ascent. And the people of Israel would very likely sing these Psalms as songs as they traveled to Jerusalem. So this was the original road trip album, if you will, as the people of Israel were on their journey. And although that was for a physical pilgrimage initially, Over time, these songs began to be used symbolically and spiritually as the anthem for anyone who was on any kind of spiritual journey, moving towards some destination, some end, or some goal. And so we can identify with these psalms as well because we too are on a spiritual journey, right? All of us. Whether we're far from God this morning or we've been tracking with the Lord for years and years, we're moving towards some end, some destination, some goal. Now, as this traveler is on his journey, he's immediately aware of his need for help. As I said, you see it there in verse 1. He looks up, he sees the mountains, and his first thought is, where is my help going to come from? The very sight of the mountains was intimidating and overwhelming. Any path winding through the mountains in that area at that time, in that day and age, meant both danger and difficulty. The terrain was rough. There's lack of appropriate shelter, and not only that, but the climb is uphill, as I said. And so it would have been a difficult journey for anyone. 
Which is why surveying the way mountains appear in the Bible, one biblical scholar says mountains are not inviting places. And oftentimes people would go around them even if it meant great extra time to their journey just to avoid the challenges that they offered. And so this traveler looks, he sees the mountain, and he says, oh man, this is going to be pretty tough. But it's not just difficult, it's also dangerous. It's not just that the terrain was hard, it was slippery. It was easy to lose your footing. On top of that, there were often robbers and thieves that lurked in the mountains in that day and age waiting to attack travelers. And then, of course, there might have been wild animals to look out for. This was not a fun place to travel as an ancient traveler. And so we see it's not just hard, it's scary. It was dangerous. And so we can identify with this as well, right? There are moments in our lives when you look ahead and you realize that everything in front of you is simply too hard. You don't have the strength. You don't, you don't have what it takes. It's too much. Things maybe like bre- navigating a broken or a breaking relationship. Maybe a broken marriage. Maybe it's much bigger issues, confronting injustices, things like systemic racism or sexism. Or maybe it's way more personal for you. Maybe it's dealing with things like loneliness. Like if you were really honest with me this morning or if you were honest with a really good friend of yours, you'd, you'd just say, I am incredibly lonely and I don't know who to talk to about it. Or I'm dealing with fear or anxiety. Like what is your greatest fear, honestly? What is your most legitimate fear? What scares you right now in your life? What fears do you have? Maybe terrorism legitimately terrifies you. Or maybe for you, it's the seemingly never-ending demands of our job that grind on and on and on. Or, of course, there's the prospect of death itself. So we can all relate to this. We look ahead at these things and we think, this is too much for me to handle in my own strength. I can't do it. And so the mountain symbolized the difficulty of the journey. And this traveler, with one glance at the mountains, realizes, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to need help, right? And for us, it's in moments like these that we have honesty and vulnerability and transparency, that we actually realize that we don't have the strength within ourselves to complete the journey. And that's what Psalm 121 is really trying to say to us right off the bat, right off the bat, the very first line. It's the first thing it's trying to get across. It's meant to bring us to an awareness of our own limitations to an end of ourselves, to the end of our own strength. You know, we live as we're talking about this need for help, we live in a remarkably strange cultural moment. Because consider this, there's never been a time in the history of the world that this self-help industry has been booming to a greater degree. That in the United States alone, every year, the self-help book industry is about a $10 billion a year industry. But what's interesting is that the most likely purchaser of a self-help book is someone who has already purchased a self-help book in the previous 18 months. Now you say maybe people just like self-help books, and indeed they do. I'm sure maybe you start to get hooked on that stuff. And yet, my point is, they must not be working. And so we're acknowledging, yes, we need help, and yet the things we're looking to to help us just simply aren't working. Actor Kevin Hart tells the story of his mom helping him uh, in the first year he stepped out to try to make it as a comedian. He did this interview, I think, with Oprah some years back, and he tells this story. And so his mom told him that he had one year to prove that comedy was what he really wanted to do, but also that he could support himself doing it. 
She said that she would help him pay his rent if he read his Bible every day. And so Hart said that in the first six months doing stand-up comedy was fun. He was learning a lot. He was uh, networking. He was, you know, forging those important relationships as he wanted to. But he wasn't making enough money. And he started to miss his rent payments. And so he went to his mom for help. And she said, are you reading your Bible like I told you to? And Hart goes, come on, mom. I don't have time for that. Like, mom, just help me with rent money. So apparently the conversation went back and forth for weeks with his mom continually, continually telling him that a discussion about rent would unfold once he read his Bible. And soon the dreaded eviction notice came, and so Hart went to his mom's house one more time to beg, and yet she wouldn't budge. So finally Kevin Hart goes home and says, all right, I'll open up the Bible. And he opens it up, and out falls six rent checks. His mom had put six rent checks in his Bible. The point, of course, again, is that we really do need help, but we very often look for it everywhere except where it can be found. And we're not listening, perhaps, to the one person who can help us the most. And so on the one hand, we have this booming industry of people trying to get help for themselves, but on the other hand, we're a very proud people, aren't we? We never want to let anyone see our weaknesses or our vulnerabilities. We hate to admit that we're not self-sufficient. And to say that we need help is seen as foolishness in our culture. Nobody wants to look weak, right? And yet the reality, according to the Bible and according to this very psalm, and even it's just common sense, right, if we think about it, is we aren't self-sufficient. It's a myth, right? It's an illusion. We need help. And so that is what Psalm 121 is saying right off the bat. What do we need? We need help. But where do we go to find it? Where do we look? And so the second point, what does God give? What does God give? What's, what's God going to give to this traveler and to you and I that gives us hope and confidence, even in the midst of a journey that's both dangerous and difficult? And the answer is that God himself provides a help that is both constant and complete, that God himself will be the help that we need and that help, as we'll see in this psalm, is both constant and complete. So you see it here in the psalm in verse 2. He looks up, not to the mountains, but he looks even higher than that. He says, my help comes from the maker, the maker of heaven and earth. He looks up and he sees, he sees the mountain is big and threatening, but he goes, my eyes, my faith is on something much bigger, the one who made the mountains, the one who made the sun, moon, and stars. And so he starts to derive confidence from that. That's where his help is coming from. But then the question is, this help, what does that mean? That's so abstract and vague. The question is, what is the help that God gives? And maybe many times we don't think it's the help that we're looking for. It's not the help that we want. But what is the help that God gives? And that's actually what the rest of the psalm is about. So if you glance, if you have your Bible open, glance at verses 3 down to the end of the, the psalm, verse 8. You'll see the word watch or watches, appears about five times. That's the key word in the psalm, that God's help comes in the form of his watchful and protective care. And if you're taking notes, maybe write this down, because that's really the main point of the sermon. God's help comes into our lives in the form of his watchful and protective care. The word watch in this passage is sometimes translated keep or guard or protect 
And so God's help is coming into the psalmist's life, into our lives, in a way that's actively protecting him, in a way that's actively guarding us, in a way that is keeping us safe from all kinds of evil. Which is why the Apostle Peter comes along in the New Testament, and at the end of his first letter in 1 Peter 5, 7, says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. So why are you holding back? Cast all your cares and concerns and your frustrations onto him. God helps us by doing this constantly and completely. And so verses 3 and 4 tell us that this help, this watchful protective hand of God, is constant. You see it here in the images in verses 3 and 4. God never slumbers. He never sleeps. And that's a biblical and a poetic way of saying God is never off duty, right? Maybe some of you in here have a military background or an armed forces background, and you've had plenty of times in your life, perhaps in the early years when you're in training, I don't know how this works, but when you've had to keep watch through the night, right? You're posting guard, and you have a series of hours from 1 to 4 a.m. or whatever it is, but you have to stay awake. You weren't allowed to sleep. And oh my goodness, I bet that was so hard. And some of you maybe did fall asleep, right? But you'd never admit that to anyone. God is God. God never falls asleep on us, right? He's always on duty. He's never off duty. He's always on duty. During the summertime season, if you've sent out any emails, no doubt you've got a a reply back automatically, right? We might say it like this, that God never has an out-of-office reply come back to us. He's always accessible to his people, which is why another great psalm, Psalm 46, says in verse 1 that God is our refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in trouble. He's ever-present. He's always around us. He's always there for us. There's never a moment in which God is not ready and able to help and to come and to be the defense and the protector of his people. He's constantly providing that. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. Secondly, the text says he he really does this completely. And this comes in verses 5 and 6. Glance at verses 5 and 6. But as I've mentioned, the path that this traveler is on is, is dangerous. And one of the biggest risks that it would take as you walk to Jerusalem is the risk of sunstroke. Any journey to Jerusalem would have required a lot of walking. You're really in the desert, right? You're walking through the desert. And so the risk of sunstroke or sunsickness was extreme. And so this great enemy, the sun, to a traveler, was so relentless. How do you hide from that? What's your protection from the sun? And the psalmist comes along and says, that's what God is for me. He's the shade at my right hand. He's the one who will protect me from this great enemy. The moon's mentioned there. I don't know what's bad about the moon unless it's dark and things could attack you. Some of the commentaries I read mentioned um, being moonstruck, which is sort of a way of, it's, in, in earlier days it was called lunacy, that you would be emotionally ill or tired, or basically I think that's where we get the word lunatic. Maybe it sort of made you crazy traveling all those days. God is our great protector. And so this shows us God's complete and total care for us. Just as the sun affected every part of the journey, God's presence was able to protect every part of the traveler's life. And this is one way the Bible tells us there's absolutely no part of your life that God does not care about. No part of your life. There's absolutely no part of your life that God's protective fatherly care is not able to see you safely through. His watchful, loving hand is over you constantly and completely. And so as we look at the final two verses 7 and 8, summarizing the whole psalm so well, 
The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over you as you're coming and going both now and forevermore. And so I ask, do you believe this? Do I believe it? What would our lives look like if we believed that we were constantly and completely safe in the presence of the Lord? Now, certainly someone would like to object to verse 7 and say, really? Because maybe that struck you already. The Lord will keep you from all harm. I was driving back from something on Friday night and was talking to Leslie about this, and she um, she knew I was preaching on this psalm this week, and it was awesome. She just mentioned, she goes, you can address verse 7? Because that's kind of crazy, right? The Lord will keep you from all harm. And so certainly someone would like to object and say, like, come on. Like, I've broke my leg earlier this summer. They're pain. Things happen to us. And I think that's a great question to be asking, right? What does that mean? Eugene Peterson is an author and a pastor. Maybe you know that name because he's the translator of the message paraphrase of the Bible, a wonderful paraphrase. And I think this was Peterson's first book, a book called A Long Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is really a book over all 15 Psalms of Ascent. He comments on this exact psalm and really speaks to this this question. Um, But he writes this, the promise of this psalm, and both Hebrews and Christians have always read it this way, is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, we'll be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. He goes on to say, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. What it promises is preservation from all the evil in them. I think that says it really well. I think what we have to do in order to reconcile the reality of our lives with this psalm is to keep raising our eyes above the mountains or above whatever it is that the mountains symbolize and stand for in your life and look up to the maker of heaven and earth. We need to look to the promises of God in Scripture, like the ones we see in the book of Revelation, that for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there's coming a day when God's kingdom will be established on earth and every tear will be wiped away and every sad thing will come untrue and all evil, all injustice will be done away with. Our bodies will be perfectly healed. That's what's coming And so, yes, there are problems and pains and hardships that we all experience, absolutely. But they can't bring about for the people of God ultimate hurt or eternal hurt. Now, if you're in the midst of suffering right now, I I can't imagine what you're going through, and I don't pretend to. But here's what I'd want you to know, that the great promise of Psalm 121 and the whole Bible is that God is working in the midst of our pain And it's actually producing the kind of confident hope and help in which we'll never be forsaken and never be abandoned. And so I ask, are you safe in this way? Do you believe this? Has this been your experience? Do you have an inner peace amid outer storms? And I'll be the first to confess, and maybe you would too, that I don't always experience this. I often don't. That most of the time, my life isn't marked by peace. It's marked by frustration or worry or fear. And what I realize is I'm going to have to ask for help if I'm going to receive it. I need to seek help if I'm going to be helped by the promises that God gives. So that leads us to our final question. 
How can we know that God's going to help us? How can we know without a doubt that we'll actually get help from God, that his help will actually come into our lives? Because it's one thing to ask for help, but it's a whole other thing to receive it. The psalmist knows that God is able to help. The question is, will he? Is he going to show up in our moment of great need? And the answer, according to the writers of Scripture, is yes, he'll be there. How do we know that? Well, the answer for that starts in John chapter 17. This is the night before Jesus is to be crucified, and he's praying in the garden. This is a great priestly prayer. And the main thing that Jesus is praying about, really, is that God would keep his people safe, that he would protect them. And then the very next thing that Jesus does in his life is go to a mock trial where he's falsely accused, he's betrayed by his friends, and ultimately he's condemned to die. And you say, Brad, what's the connection? Well, in John 17, Jesus is praying for the safety of his people, and in an almost ironic way to answer that prayer, God the Father says to the Son, the only way that these people are going to be kept safe ultimately is if you're not. The only way these people are going to be brought safely home is if you're cast out. And so Jesus Christ, in his moment of being betrayed and accused, is condemned to die. And he's led outside of the city of Jerusalem, and he's brought to another mountain, another hill, the hill of Golgotha. And there he's crucified. We need to remember what's happening in that moment as Jesus is crucified there on the cross. See, Jesus is the perfect Son of God, the one who never disobeyed, the one who is perfect in every thought and action, in every word, and every motive. And he, at any moment, could have said to his Father, help, look at what's happening to me, help. In fact, the night before, as one of his disciples took out a sword to defend him as the mob came to arrest him, Jesus said to Peter, put that away, Peter. Don't you realize that if I called to my father, he would at this moment send for me 12 legions of angels. So put your sword away. Jesus could have asked for help, and it would have come, but he didn't. And on the cross, instead of receiving his help from God, he received stunning silence as he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this happening? Well, because Jesus is not a helpless victim, he's a sacrificial substitute. He's taking upon himself all of the sin and all of the evil and all of the injustice of the world, and he's taking it on his own shoulders. So from that day forward, whoever would look to him in faith and trust in him, that person would then be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he sees the perfection of his son, that's what he sees. So how does that relate to our need for help? What does that do really for us specifically? It relates like this. In our culture, the world really says help only comes to those who deserve it. Maybe it says help always comes to those who deserve it, to the worthy, to those who are good enough. And that's why often in our heart of hearts, deep down, we don't actually believe that God is going to help us, do we? Because we don't feel worthy. We don't think we deserve it or that we've earned it. So do you see what the cross of Jesus Christ can mean? 
you don't deserve anything from God, and neither do I. And yet, because Jesus Christ has died in our place for our sins as our substitute, when you cry out to God for help, he hears your voice, but he sees his son. Again, he sees the perfection of Jesus. He doesn't see your ugliness or your pain or the mess that you're going through. He hears you, but he sees his son. You see, Jesus was completely worthy. He had all the glory and splendor of heaven. And now all of that comes to you if you're in Christ. It comes to me. It comes to all of those who've placed their faith and their hope and their life in Jesus Christ. And so three things we said come right out of this psalm. What do we need? What does God give? And then how can we know for sure? How can we really know that he's going to help us when we need it? But now just two questions for you. I want you to think about this. Where do you need help the most in your life? Would you just think about that in your mind real quick right now? Where do you need help the most? And then what can you do about it? Where can you find help? Where is help available to you for that? Who can you talk to? But second question is this, what's one thing you've learned about God's care that you need to cling to? What's one thing you've learned about the confidence you can have in Jesus Christ that you need to memorize or hold on to or recite to yourself and really cling to? Just those two things. See, help doesn't only come to those who deserve it. It comes precisely to those who don't. Because of the gospel, right? Because of the good news that Jesus Christ came and stood in our place, took hell for us, took death for us, took our death penalty for us. And it's for that reason that Christians can say, no matter where I go, no matter what happens to me, no matter what's crashing down in my life, no matter how dangerous the journey, there's always a help for me from the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Father God, we really do need your help. And God, we need help in so many different areas, and God, maybe from so many different sources. And yet, God, when we think about eternity, when we think about death, when we think about the grand things in life, God, the things that can really hurt us, God, we need your help the most. We need your help foundationally, God. We need the truth of the gospel. God, we need to be protected from anything and everything, God, that comes at us. But God, we know that nothing can separate us, not height or depth or angels or demons. God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so God, remind us of that for whatever storm we're facing. God, give us inner peace amidst an outer storm. And God, may your help come into the cracks in our heart and the weak places in our soul. And God, would you fill us this morning? God, fill our hearts. God, give us hope and confidence about eternity. And God, may we cling to the promises of Scripture. God, you promised so many good things for us. And God, that's maybe the number one place we could run to for help. So God, we need you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.